it's the 87th Precinct Podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mysteries, the genre-defining series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast is all about book number 21, 80 Million Eyes. To review the book, I'm joined by four of those eyes and associated eyewear in the form of Mr. Morgan Blinky Brown. Hello there. And Mr. Stephen the Peerer Royston. <laughs> Hello. Uh, we do need to mention here at the top of the show that we've moved podcast hosts again, which I did last year, mm. which will hopefully give us more reach and allow our McBainy tendrils to stretch further and reach more people. We've moved to Podbean, basically. They're more podcasty, if that makes sense. That's a good thing it's for a, a podcast. It's a good set of tools to have at your fingertips. Like statistics are more detailed. I can Ooh. really drill down right, into right. the eight people who listen to, <laughs> to the show. But so if you could remember to share and rate and review and stuff like that, hopefully the switch to this new host shouldn't cause any interruption of service wherever you get your podcasts. I would say if it does, tell us. But if it does interrupt the service, you won't hear this message, so you won't know. <laughs> So there you go. Remember, if you'd like to support us to donate to the running of the show, you can use PayPal and visit coffee.com, ko-fi.com slash hark87podcast to buy us a digital coffee. So this is the only 87th Precinct novel in 1966. And in fact, it's the only one then until 1968. He has a year off the 87th Precinct for the first time. So we'll get going with... 1966. I just watched a film from 1966 today and just realised... What was that film? A Study in Terror. Oh, right. Have you ever seen that? Is that a Sherlock Holmes one? It is, yeah. I just, it just dawned on me now. Yeah. Where he's investigating the, the Jack the Ripper killings. Who's Holmes in that one? Uh, John Neville. Did you did we watch that together once around here? Possibly, because I've seen it before. I didn't think I had and I was watching it thinking, Yeah, uh, I've seen this. Yeah, I think I may have seen it as well. Oh, is that 1966? Yeah, Frank Finlay as Lustrade. Righto. Yep. So that was happening in 1966. That's not on my list. That's a bonus one. Well, one point to me. Who wants to start with guessing top five UK or US? Morgan can start with that. Yeah, Morgan. I've answered Um, that bit. I always go for uh, Penny Lane and then get told I'm too early, but I might be actually right this time. Still early. No. No. And you're not going to get to do it either if there's no 87th Precinct in uh, yeah. 1967. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, how disappointing. Um, what Beatles singles do we have in 66? I'm, I'm struggling to think now. Rubber um, Soul stuff. Well, you're in the right uh, area, but uh, No really... singles off those albums, though, are there? So it's, well, there's... It, well, there's... There's America. Was it's, it's a different ah, matter in America. Course, yeah. But in the top five, both in um, uh, the UK and the US at this point, there's no Beatles singles. All oh, right, okay. We can well, that's... Uh, the birds kicked off, yet. Yeah. They have. They've Mr. been Tambourine around for a little Man. bit. Um, yeah. Is that 66? More like 64-ish. Ooh, is it? Um, Tambourine Man was 64, I think. All oh, right. Simon and Garfunkel. Simon and Garfunkel do feature in this list, so... Homeward Bound is number five in the US. Crazy. Oh, I should point out, the reason I'm saying this, not just the arbitrary charts for 1966, this is the charts around the 4th of April 1966. Ah, that makes all the difference. Well, Phew. Which is when the copyright for this book was registered. 
That's so right. there you go. So Homeward Bound was by Simon and Garfunkel was in there in 1966. Terrific. Uh, the Monkeys? They're certainly around in the charts at the time because 1966 is when the show starts, but possibly not at this point Maybe in the year. Oh, okay. It's a funny one. I wouldn't really, <laughs> other than sort of stumbling across some of the, the, the bands you would expect to be there, it, it's unlikely that you would get some of these, I think. Okay. Things like the number one in the UK was The Sun Ain't Gonna Shine Anymore by oh, by the Walker, Walker Brothers. Brothers yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't get I Can't Let Go by the Hollies was number two. Good Hollies single. Like cracking, that one. yeah. The Yardbirds are at number three with Shapes of Things. Oh yeah, Jeff Beck going a bit bit mental on the guitar there, yes. Well, I don't know that one, I don't think. Yeah, it's 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 a bit of a proto psychedelic kind of stomper. No. Quite good. Well, we move on to slightly more poppy things with the Kinks and dedicated follower oh, of fashion. Lovely. And I was, I, I'm going to do tell you who was at number five and who was at number six in the UK charts now. So at number five, there was a song called Elusive Butterfly by a chap called Bob Lind, which is slightly folk hmm. pop tinged thing. Yeah. At number six in the charts in the UK was a song called Elusive Butterfly <laughs> by Val Dunican. <laughs> And yet, I've never heard Elusive Butterfly. Well, two versions of the... Two versions of the same, the same song. song. That's crazy. So, yeah, they presumably did that thing where they that they sometimes did was they had a UK release to try and capitalise on the success mm. of it or because they got the song from Tin Pan Alley and brought it over or whatever. Normally when that's happened, it's, it's a song you know quite well, though, isn't it? Like yeah. Because there were lots of versions of it out in the charts, like Unchained Melody or, or whatever. But uh, Elusive Butterfly no. has eluded me. Apparently uh, Glenn Campbell covered it. Wow. Is that at number seven? That, <laughs> yeah. The rest of the charts is Elusive Butterflies all the way down. No, nope, never heard of that. So in the US, I'm going to sort of work backwards. Uh, the Beatles were actually at number six with Nowhere Man in, in the US charts. Number four was Daydream by The Loving Spoonful. Quite an influential sort of mm-hmm. psych pop single. Yeah. Number three was You're My Soul and Inspiration by The Righteous Brothers. I don't know that one. No, I don't know it at all. Number two was 19th Nervous Breakdown by The Rolling Stones. It's a good one. My Rolling Stones knowledge is purposefully blank. Ah. I can't actually think what it goes like, that one. Oh, it's... Nervous breakdown. Yeah, it's, it's a good nap. I've had one nervous breakdown, two <laughs> nervous breakdowns, three nervous breakdowns, more. And he says like he's never heard it. <laughs> but number one is by everyone's favourite staff sergeant, Staff Sergeant Barry Sadler. Oh, yeah. With The Ballad of the Green Berets. Yeah, yeah well, what a classic... <laughs> that was yeah. That was in the charts in the UK as well. It's so he literally was someone who was in the army, and it was very it's pro Vietnam propaganda Marvelous. song basically. It's just a military drum and a few trumpets, and him going on about how great the Green Berets are. Well, sure wow, are. and it's very strange. It does sound it. It hmm. was covered, however, by a band called the Fu's. Oh yes, the Boston Hardcore. <laughs> So I listened to their version, which starts as a pretty straight cover of it, other than the recording quality, and then does end up in full thrash. Yeah, probably less patriotic and intent, I would imagine. I would suggest they probably did it almost sarcastically. <laughs> almost, yeah. <laughs> I'm taking it that wasn't released in 1966. No, not the uh, Boston hardcore band's <laughs> cover version. 82-ish, something like that. I don't that know. sounds about right. <laughs> so anyway, some odd ones there. You start, you're built to start soon doing like an album one as well, won't you? Because that'll have more relevance. 
Yes, because I, I would think already by this point, maybe. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, yeah. perhaps your fact sheet should do it next time for nineteen sixty-eight, definitely. Yes, well, I would have thought so. Certainly, yeah. as you come into the seventies, the albums were probably more. Might be a more interesting thing to look of, at. Yeah, yeah. National, we can we yeah. can delve into both, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, the Beatles at this time had they'd put out Rubber Soul, and they were just about starting working on Revolver, which is why they, there wasn't much in the charts at this point. They'd been doing all the Rubber Soul publicity and done the singles and all that sort of stuff. Shortly before they stopped touring, right? Films. <laughs> a study in Scarlet. <laughs> uh... Study in Terror. Sorry, Terror. <laughs> well, Scarlet was the first book, book wasn't yeah. Sherlock Holmes' book? Wasn't it? Go on, Steve. Let's have a go. What at the guess the Carry On film? Oh right, there's um, two you could have. There's Ooh. two. Yeah, you know, you know I'm absolutely awful at this. <laughs> That's the joy of it. Ca- hmm. Carry On. Dun, 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 Is it black and white or colour by the, this stage? Probably still colour. In... No, both colour. These ones. Colour. Both in colour. Carry On. Um, holidays. Carry on holidays. <laughs> no, carry on. What does the second? What's it begin with? Well, the second one, funnily enough, doesn't officially begin with the words "carry on." Ah, so it's uh, one, one just of to those, make life even e- easier like, for like, you. <laughs> like, don't lose your head. Or... Don't lose your head. Carry on. Don't lose your head. Was the second of the ones from that Amazing. year. The Scarlet Pimpernel one, is it? Yes, it is. That's the French Revolution. See, yeah, so I'm fairly sure I've seen that, but I didn't know it was called that. And the other one is the one that I think is probably the best I've mentioned as one of the better ones. Carrying up the Kyber. No, no. Although it is very well thought of, despite it being massively racist. <laughs> I think they all were, weren't they? Well, <laughs> perhaps not. No, no, not perhaps so much the early ones, but when they get into mm. Kenneth Williams as leaders of sort of subcontinental countries or whatever, yeah. it's tricky. Carry on. It's a horror one. And there's only one horror one. Carry Screaming? on. Screaming? Screaming. Oh, yeah, of Carry course, yeah. Which so, I suppose would have been on the back of all the hammer, the boom in the hammer horror stuff. So what was the big hammer time. horror film of that year? Um, uh, 1966, let me have a think. Was that... Um, and it is a Prince classic. of Darkness? Yeah, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. So that's, that's a real standout in the hammer canon, isn't it? Well, it was the third Dracula film they did, but, yeah, it kind of really rebooted it almost. And that, that was the very beginning of the the next, I don't know, four or five years of mm-hmm. non-stop. First slightly gory one, I suppose, as well, ever so slightly. Yeah, it's good, Dracula, Prince of Darkness. It is, yeah. I, so, think, I think Christopher Lee's got about 13 lines in the entire film or something like that. Mainly just sort of a... Yeah, smouldering presence, isn't Wanders he? around <laughs> staring at people and a bit of, bit of pointing going on. He's good with the pointing, yeah. Yeah, I concur. There is some good... Steve-O is mimicking <laughs> it now, and it is quite terrifying anyway. Yeah, no, that is very good, yeah. The top grossing film of 1966, and I Oof. wouldn't have known this if, if if it had come up in Trivial Pursuit. 1966, uh, a British or an American film? It's an... Italian-American co-production. Ooh. An Italian-American co-production. I'm going to say... If a, you get this, I'll be astonished. Uh, let me have a think. I'm going to say The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. No, but that is in there as one of the top films of 1966. So that's that's on my little list. The top grossing film was The Bible in ah, the beginning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I like that it's got the subtitle <laughs> in the beginning. Is that John Houston? 
What am I thinking? Oh, I don't know. It was a Dino De Laurentiis production, ah, so right. it's oh. one of these great big films. Excellent. Um, so. That's almost me having told off <laughs> the Carry On team retrospectively for being racist. I was about to start doing a Dino De Laurentiis impression. This is because I was listening to the Trial of a Time Lord podcast the other day, and it was, they were doing a thing about guilty pleasures, and they were talking about the film Dune, mm. and it did involve lots of impressions of Dino De Laurentiis, mm. who seemed to think that that was like a kid's film he was making rather than... <laughs> a weird David Lynch epic. <laughs> but yeah, the Bible in the beginning was a top grossing film. The film A Man for All Seasons was the Oscar winner that year. <laughs> Man for All Neesdens. And there was a film out in 1966 called Morgan, A Suitable Case for oh, Treatment. Yeah. <laughs> and I've written down the synopsis for that and I think we might have a look at that in the bonus episode. Do you know anything about it, Morgan? Uh, no, I, I only know the title because occasionally um, customers I speak to at work will uh, find out my name and go, Ah, Morgan, a suitable case for treatment. And then laugh for a while while I sit there on the other end of the phone. Feeling if a bit if sad. somebody said that to me and my name was Morgan, I would absolutely have absolutely no idea what they were going on about. <laughs> I've never heard of that at all. No, well, we'll find out more about it in the bonus episode for Tremendous. definite. I'll tune in. <laughs> you should. <laughs> Yeah, I mentioned that the monkeys started on TV. Star mm. Trek started on TV as well. Yeah. And in this country, Camberwick Green oh. debuted. Now, what amazes me, of course, is Star Trek, for instance, was huge uh, forever, you know, for us growing up, and obviously all the new iterations of it. Camberwick Green starts in 1966, but that was still on TV when we were growing up. Yeah, but I think there was only like one or two series of it. Yeah, it yeah was, but it was repeated kept going round constantly, round. wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. With Trumpton and, and, and Chigley and all that mm. stuff. But that's that weird thing of from the sort of mid sixties to the, perhaps the mid eighties, because there's much less stuff. Mm. You, more of the stuff comes round over and over yeah. again, and then it gets different after that. Oh, right, we better move on with this, right? April the 30th in the UK, the first regular hovercraft service starts. Oh, brilliant. And he gets. Port- Portsmouth to the Isle of Wight. It was cross channel, I think. Oh, right. Ooh. I don't have the full hovercraft details. I think, I think there was one still running to the Isle of Wight. Hmm. What year do you think that service ended? I think that service ended in about. Ooh, let's have a think. Uh, about 1992. It was the year 2000. Oh, wow. Superseded by the Channel Tunnel, really. That's so much less futuristic, though. Hovercrafts are brilliant. I've never been on a hovercraft. I have a feeling that I may never get on a hovercraft. I think think there's still one that goes to the Isle of Wight. That's your your chance. Yeah. I feel like I want to stow away on it rather than go on it officially now, just to add some (laughs) thrill. When you had your toy cars as a kid, though, you used to have a toy hovercraft. I had a toy hovercraft. Yeah, had wheels underneath to cheat, moving well, it around. Matchbox but... hovercraft. Yeah. In, in those days, when they were making those toys, we still assumed that at some point everyone would just travel by hovercraft. Yeah. It's a very Which plausible seemed... mode of transportation. Yeah, of course. I mean, nothing happened in sport in 1966, so we can move on from that. Uh, thankfully, yeah. yeah. Great, let's skip yeah, over I think that. that's an error. <laughs> right, so England won the World Cup. They did beating West Germany 4-2 in 1966, and no one's shut up about it since. (laughs) But then we haven't won it again since, so... The best bit of that story is that the the statue, the trophy, the World Cup itself, the Jules Rimet Rimet statue, was stolen, and it was found by a dog called Pickles. It was. That is good. In a hedge somewhere. I don't think they ever found out who 
swiped it. No, I think someone tried to get a ransom for it, or, or and just, but it just ended up it stuffed in a hedge and a dog called Pickles <laughs> found it. Fair enough. And if you want to look up about Pickles, he got awarded a medal and became a bit of a celebrity and then died a horrible death not long afterwards. Really? Yeah, so I'm not going to talk about that. Huh. I thought you were going to say he got picked for England a year after. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been putting dogs in goal ever since. <laughs> we've never won it again. But in America, in terms of football, Super Bowl one tops off the championship. So the first official proper Super Bowl happens. Well, it happens in the, you know in January the following. Would have been known as Super Bowl then, though. I don't think it was Super Bowl one, nineteen sixty. Well, it was sixty seven. It technically mm. was when it happened with the uh, Packers beating the Chiefs thirty five ten. They did, and then they won two as well. Right, but more in the line of of stuff we're talking about. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> In America, one of the important things that happened was the Miranda versus Arizona case. Now, in these Ed McBain books, 87th Precinct, probably from this point in, we started to hear a lot about Miranda and Mirandizing, which, as most people probably know now, is the informing the person you're arresting of their rights. Yeah. And it stemmed mainly from the case of Ernesto Miranda, which just started in 1963. So he had been arrested on some circumstantial evidence for the kidnapping and rape of uh, an 18-year-old. So they interrogated him and he signed a confession, but he had not been advised of his right to counsel. He hadn't been advised of his right to remain silent and he hadn't been told that his confession would be used against him. He received a 20 to 30-year sentence, but his lawyers appealed to the Supreme Court and said basically the process wasn't followed and so they had to quash it. And this is where this statute came in that's been known as... I, don't, I say statute, I don't really understand the you know, the technical and legal terms no. there, but where this yeah. precedent, let's say, came in yeah, of Miranda. This guy, Ernesto Miranda, was tried again later with more robust evidence. Mm. So they, they did finally get him. Although the funny thing was, he only served a few years. He served about six or seven years rather than 30. Oh, yeah. And apparently he made a modest living afterwards autographing police officers' Miranda cards. God. Which, you know, you have the text of the warning yeah. on that you read out to people. And then he was stabbed to death in 1976. Most of my stories today end in <laughs> so, so many really endings. horrible things. But there was also a thing called Escobedo versus Illinois. So sometimes you hear about Miranda Escobedo. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Which was about the, again, about the availability of counsel for a, for a witness where... Escobedo had appealed his sentence for shooting and killing someone, but he'd been denied a right to counsel and it oh. caused all that bother. It'd be, that little... it'd be interesting to see that whether that immediately crops up in the next book, something to look out for. Yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking. I'm wondering whether it was... Definitely not in this one. Yeah, so this is this is pre the ruling, really, it would have yeah. been written or it would have been happening while this was being written. Although, to be fair, they don't arrest anybody in this until the last page. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> It was interesting. I was listening again to Ed McBain on Desert Island Discs, which is just a nice listen to hear him. And they, he was speaking, or he was asked about how he did his research. Did he spend a lot of time with police? And he was saying, yeah, at the start, I spent a lot of time with police. But now, and I think it's Desert Island Discs was in the 70s or something, he says, I'd sort of do refresher courses where I go and ride with them a bit and, and right. sort of... But he his invention of the 87th precinct was partly so he didn't have to keep up with all these yeah. changes. But Miranda was such a big impact on the entire yeah. police force that you start to see it come in in the books loads. And it's really important. So, you, yeah, 
the next book may have it in, I think. But Yeah, he's definitely very prominently features yeah. in... Wouldn't be surprised Matthew. to see it cropping up immediately, really. So, 80 million eyes. Well, well, well. Well, indeed. 80 million. Who'd have thought? That's a lot of eyes. That's assuming that everyone is... Has got, got two eyes. Binocular vision. That, that's a big assumption to be making. Or that the... There's more people disparity watching. Disparity makes up 80 million. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a nobody, good title. No, and nobody's asleep. Well, then they won't be watching it if they're asleep. Or if anybody's listening but not watching. <laughs> yeah. So it's a bit of a, you know... I mean, it's, it's a guess, isn't it, really? <laughs> Number of eyes. Yeah, well, I suspect that the TV station involved in this story has probably done their research, so they'll know how many eyes watch the Stan Gifford show. But it was a very striking title. It is. It, uh, it's it's yeah. one of my favourite titles. Yeah, well, oh, it's I, a good definitely. title. 80 million eyes. You think the covers, at least one of them, would involve eyes? No, I don't think. But, let's, uh, let's not go too far. No. Yeah. So, yeah, good title. You think, what on earth can that be about? And it's nothing really to do with eyes, really. No, but yeah, this is a classic McBain trick. Not yeah. trick. Idea is get a good title, work it out from there to some extent, <laughs> really. And he admits to that. He says stories usually start with a title. And that's fair enough. Now, did you notice with this book on the copyright page, I don't know if it says in, in, in both of yours, but if you didn't notice it, get ready to have your mind blown. The Deer Hunter. D-E-A-R. Yeah. Well, it, 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 it is two stories. It is two stories. That run in parallel. So Morgan's got a mad edition, so I don't know if it'll list yeah, it. Absolutely. Yep. So what, what's the explanation to that? Oh, wise one. <laughs> with the, with the so there's, It's basically got a double copyright notice because there was a story called The Deer Hunter published in 1965 and a story called 80 Million Eyes originally published in 1963. In magazines. Oh, right. Okay. So it's two novellas intertwined together. Yeah. And that's what makes this what it is. And I think once you know that, it's pretty obvious. A couple of the reviews I've read, and we'll have a look at them, say, oh, the two stories support each other by reflecting each other. And I'm not entirely sure that they do, <laughs> particularly. It's two stories happening at the same time. So... 80 Million Eyes was originally published in Argosy magazine, where some of his other stuff has been published. Yes, I've got the front cover to look at. But The Deer Hunter was published in a magazine called Man's Magazine. Excellent. Now we're talking. I'll pass Steve-O the cover Man's. of Man's Magazine from December 1965. Oof. So not actually that long before the book that it becomes part of comes mm, out, Man's. really. Man's 34 Days of Hell, The Deer Hunter. Oh, there we go. So that's the one involving Burt Kling, I would say. Yeah. Sex curse of the hermaphrodite. <laughs> half man, half woman. The wild, wild world of actor Peter O'Toole. <laughs> Men who feel no pain, no tears, no taste buds, no feeling. Then the annihilation of easy company. Crikey. It's well. pretty strident stuff. Yeah, the it? spy next door. He operated under the nose of the FBI. So from what I can tell from Man's Magazine, it is classic pulp stuff. Mm. But he did publish a lot of these 
short versions of things like Mickey Spillane stories, uh, like Parker stories, all that sort of thing. But then has all this sensationalist stuff, always usually with a GI on the front Mm. or something like that. Framed. I spent 25 years in prison for a crime I didn't commit. I saw I saw the cover of one from earlier that year where one of the titles was Snake Pits, They Still Exist. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true then and it's so true now. I don't lift this rug up in case there's a snake pit beneath it. We've still not got rid of them, have we? No. It's very true. (laughs) Still a daily hazard. What's that, Argosy? I'll I'll pass that to Morgan, but I just should mention as well, after the publication of the, the actual hardback of the book, the reduced version of 80 Million Eyes, the original short story, was also republished again in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, mm-hmm. presumably as a good tie-in publicity thing. But Morgan might want to tell us something about the slightly more friendly-looking cover of Argosy Magazine. Oh, that looks fun. Yeah, there's people... Um, I don't know what that pastime is, is called, really. They're, they're sort of water skiing, but with kites attached to them. It looks fun. Yeah. Um, Paris, windsurfing. Paraskiing. Para... Para. Uh, yeah, para something or othering, anyway, yeah. Not sure quite what, but uh, there's still some fairly vigorous sounding stuff going on in there once you get past the nice friendly image. America's flying soldiers of fortune. Yeah. Plane bombing expose. Was Julian Frank murdered? Well, we may never know. We may never was. know. Always thought he was. Uh, uncovered by Sahara Sands at Daredevil's Diary. Ooh. Broken. The secret code of females. <laughs> Good that someone broke think. it, finally. Um, special big boating section. Doesn't sound quite as vigorous or exciting. Big boating. You can't beat a bit of big boating, can you? Uh, that's true. Uh, how to get that job overseas? Well, maybe once you've built yeah. your big boat, you can yeah. go overseas to get that, that a, job. A paraglider uh, instructor. It all, it all ties in. And then um, extra bonus $3.85 book. Uh, Ed McBain's latest 87th Precinct Mystery. Which was this, or half of this? It was the 80 Million Eyes, the TV murder case story. All right, okay. Can I have a look at that? You can have a little uh, look at that. uh, I do love these. Ellery Queens, look at that. EQMM. Big shout out to EQMM. They still (laughs) exist. The Man in the Blue Spectacles. Oh, yeah, look at that. Wow, well, there you go. There you, as you so rightly yeah, say, you can't go. You can see it, but uh, just the, the people strapped to kites and the, hanging uh, the, off the, the back the, of a boat. It looks the, like some sort of almost torture kind of... It does a bit. The caption, I think, is Miami to Bim- to somewhere else by kite. Yeah. You can stay up there until <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Well, there we go. You're, not coming, you're not coming back on the big boat <laughs> until... Um, until you've hovered for 300 miles. I'll I'll try to remember to put up some of these covers mm. or to direct you to where you can find them anyway online. Very good. But it's interesting that yeah, the Deer Hunter and, and 80 Million Eyes woven together into this thing. Mm. I do like a, a double track story mm. though, uh, because well, uh, it keeps one interested throughout uh, every single page. Well, they keep you interested anyway, but mm. even more interested than normal. Because as soon as You've forgotten about the other story. You start picking it up again. True. That's it's a classic bit of police procedure, isn't it? 
it's not just everyone focused on one thing. Absolutely. Yeah. As usual. Busy squad, squad room. There are different cases going on, so it's good to, to look at a couple of different things that are happening uh, at the same time. He's done that before, has he not? He has, yeah. Yeah, he definitely yeah. has. Uh, possibly maybe in, different in, lines that ultimately end up with some massive coincidence of how they related maybe but, but the, these are related at all the 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 deer hunter story here is a vehicle for cling mm. to be paired up again with Cindy Forrest who we last saw him having a massive falling out with accidentally during the 10 plus 1 sniper case a mm. few books ago and she hates him still even though he's been assigned to try and stop her being beaten to a bloody pulp by a Some mysterious moon. man, which actually he fails to do anyway. It's an interesting opening to the whole book, though, the Miles Volner stuff. Yeah, it oh, yeah. is, yeah. I like that. So someone some comes back to his office. strange... Yeah, some strange... Man in a hat. Man in an office being very unreasonable and weird and then extremely violent. Yeah. And it comes from nowhere, and you're like, what is that all about? Yeah, because it's that interesting thing of the police turn up to this guy, a patrolman's sent along to this, try and get this guy out of the office. And if you go along to someone and you say to them, what are you doing here and who are you? And if they just don't answer, well, that's that, isn't it, really? <laughs> Other than then having to put into place a massive amount of investigation. If, he say, if you ask him the questions and he doesn't answer, and then he kicks the snot out of you, <laughs> then you're in an interesting position, which yes. is how this book starts. So, I mean, what do we think generally about this about this book? What's our general impressions starting off before we get stuck into it? Ooh, a bit of a sigh there from Morgan. <laughs> I, I was saying earlier, I, I read this one quite sort of promptly and with a good amount of time before the podcast and loads of it had actually slipped out of my mind by today, which I don't <laughs> think is necessarily the best sign. Although, obviously, it's all flooding back to me now, but I, I don't know. I, I don't know if the two stories hang together that well. Right. Well, I don't know. I, I'll be interested to see what, what you guys think. No, I yeah, I don't think they do, but I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed reading it again. I enjoyed it. And, um, yeah, because they're quite ultimately fairly straightforward... Yeah, you know, both of them are fairly straightforward motives for what they are, and you don't really get that. Oh my God, it was him or her, and oh my God, he's that's why he's doing it. It's no, it's not kind particularly like, sinister. Other no, than, uh, being crimes but generally, they, they quite. It's quite an interesting crime in terms of how it was executed. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting, and it kind of. Brings in the paints a bit of a picture of a bit of a show busy thing that's weirdly located in in the eighty seventh precinct, which yeah is kind yeah. of in a weird area that um, you know. So I don't know. I quite enjoy. I I, I did enjoy it actually. Uh, I find uh, it really readable. Um, yeah, this one. I, yeah. I that's that's probably no, yeah. I, I, yeah, I I must admit I I must have read this in pretty much record time for any of these really. And plus, I couldn't remember who'd done it uh, either, and I couldn't remember why uh, the loon was in the office and then pestering. <laughs> but at the end, as I say, at the end, you're not flawed by any of the motives or anything. No, it's not. It's not something um, diabolical or complicated. But um, 
Yeah, just more a good read, I would say, uh, in terms of breaking any rules or creating any, you know, because we've had a few recently which have been quite different and mm. stood out and we've chatted to them about that and that, that, that's not the case for this one, but no, it's I pretty, don't suppose it's, it makes it any less No, it's pretty, it's pretty straight ahead, I think. Mm. So our main th- feature, the feature of the title of the book, is that a TV star, a huge TV star as well. So this is the eighty million eyes of the of the title is supposedly the viewing audience of the Stan Gifford show. <laughs> One of the audience members, in fact, is Steve Carella, who sits down to watch it with his his wife, who's not particularly interested, being deaf, although she can lip read and she does like the pantomimetic aspect of Stan Gifford show. <laughs> So he's a sort of, is it something like Jack Parr, Sid Caesar type character? He's got a a big variety comedy show on one of these stations out of New York that's syndicated. So he's got a huge audience. He's very, very popular. Perhaps, again, it's reflective of a world that Evan Hunter knows a little bit. He probably knows a few showbiz people. He probably knows a few TV people knocking around in the circles in which he's moving in New York at the time. Well, but this guy, Stan Gifford, then dies on TV, which is a like a Columbo setup mm-hmm. again. <laughs> Would they have been truly, absolutely live even then? I think so a lot of it was. So, to yeah. the point of not even any minor delay for the eventuality of somebody dying. No, I, no, I don't I, think so. I think so, probably, and probably for quite a while afterwards. I, mean, I think so. A lot of stuff did go up. Did just go out live, especially the the weekly stuff, the stuff that was done mm. with guests and and performances. Okay, yeah. So I don't think it's. I mean, it comes off the back of a stage tradition anyway, and TV studios weren't necessarily geared up for for saving everything that they did, and because mm. they didn't think it would be repeated again. So you'd broadcast it live. Some tapes would be made of it. They might go in an archive, or they might get wiped later for another use. Mm. Talking about the Super Bowl earlier, the, the the film of the first Super Bowl, which was simultaneously broadcast by two broadcasters, yeah. both of them just lost or wiped the film afterwards because <laughs> yeah, they just think no one's going to watch it again. Yeah, who'd want to watch that one? Yeah, it's, it's been and gone. Yeah. Mm. And it's only recently, I believe, the NFL Films team have managed to locate enough bits of film or stuff from loads of different sources where they've ever been able to piece together every play of the first Super Bowl oh, right. as a film Amazing. now, but a proper bit of TV detective work, yeah, yeah. which goes on all the time, especially in this country with the BBC having junked a lot of stuff. I've talked before about Doctor Who and things like that. It's going on all the time and all sorts of new stuff's popping up. Yeah. But yeah. that's by the way, that's the technology of the time. Yeah. But he dies live on TV. He does, yeah. Or he, he's taken super violently ill mm. alive on TV and then they cut to the band and then he pegs it. He's dead. Gone. Yeah. Which from the very outset looks like a poisoning due to excessive vomiting, etc. Yeah. It's it's a funny one because when you know the mechanism of how it's actually done, it's quite simple, really. Mm. But it's presented in quite a complex way because the it's all to do with the tablets he's been mm. taking are the device by which this poison's been administered. And we're so used to what he calls gelatin capsules now, mm. those sorts of yeah, pull-apart yeah. mm. capsules that you've got your headache tablets in or headache powder in or whatever it is. 
it's such a day-to-day thing that the idea of it being a novelty that you'd get someone would be saying, oh, you're taking capsules rather than pills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the complicated fact here is uh, a bunch of unreliable witnesses, isn't yeah. it, who are all lying for yeah. their own... All have their own... ...selfish different... motives yeah. to protect themselves and... Obviously, they don't know for a lot of time whether they're lying because they're involved in the crime or whether they're just lying to save their skin or not in wishing to be incriminated. And so that's quite good, a lot of interviewing and re-interviewing and working out the dynamics of all these people around this Stan Gifford. Yeah, and they're different sort of people than we sometimes see in the 87th Precinct books because they're showbiz folk. Yeah, yeah, whether writers and costume yeah. people. And, yeah. and so they're all sort of slightly... Weird behaviour, let's say. <laughs> yeah. and, and they're all contradicting each other about what happened in the run-up to him going on. So they just can't find, basically, how on earth this poison was administered, really. Can yeah, they? it's all for, about for the, the delay. majority of the book, they've absolutely no idea. They can't work out how he could have died when supposedly the chemical that was found in his body should have killed him very, very quickly. So that's the big mystery, isn't it? So there's a lot of forensic and lab stuff in this book as well. Hmm. On the subject of forensics... In both crimes In as both well. crimes, absolutely. Yeah. But if we if we jump to Kling's investigation, though he's trying to figure out who this guy is that's been beating up people and going after Cindy Forrest. And after she does get beaten up, which I said before, they find a load of mud on a windowsill and rush it over to the lab. And then what appears to be the most miraculous bit of forensic work. Yeah, it's a bit... Uh, and I don't know if it's realistic or not. I would say it is high, highly unrealistic. Even the brilliant Lieutenant Sam Grossman may be portrayed. <laughs> shall, I re- shall I read out what they find on his uh, If you his can shoe, find it Because there. there is a list here, isn't there? There is. Uh, suet, sawdust, blood, brackets animal, which they work out is animal blood. A hare, also a animal, animal, an animal, <laughs> a fish scale, some putty, wood splinter, metal filings, a peanut, and gasoline. And from that, in a city of ten million plus people, uh, Kling finds out the place that this guy's visited after going to about three places. <laughs> so. <laughs> And even though he's faced with somebody who, who totally, ref, ref, you know, says he's never heard of him, he just kind of bluffs his way into. Yeah, it, it that is quite an absurd because it's far fetched even for Quincy. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You the putty could... gets forgotten about, doesn't it? You know, or a glazer. He could be a glazer in somebody who uh, keeps fish and as a pet. That cut itself whilst he was uh, making a bookcase, having had a steak and kidney pudding. <laughs> Let's go and interview everybody who's done that in ten million you write people. An alternative in, ending in, to the book in half an hour. So yeah, it, it's pre- pretty crackers that. But from from those things squished in a tiny bit of mud, he gets tracked down, doesn't he? This guy. He does. It is. It's. It's remarkable. I can believe it to an extent. I can believe some of it. Mm. Like the fish scale, if you found that in someone's apartment and it was a fish scale of a haddock or a cod or something like that, something that you wouldn't find domestically if the mm. person hadn't had fish and by chance might have not tidied up properly, or whatever, yeah. then I can understand that that might make you think, 
well, you're looking for someone who's been around a place where they gut or prepare yeah. fish. That'll, that'll narrow it down. And it's all about narrowing things down. But to have that many elements on, <laughs> in one little globule <laughs> of stuff that they've scraped off a windowsill is a bit... It know. is. Perhaps it's dead realistic if you work in that field, I don't know, but it doesn't strike you as being so, does it? No. <laughs> so that's quite late on in that particular side of the uh, investigation. The other one plods along with unreliable witnesses and then... The um, widow. Well, yeah, then there's a big um, finger-pointing going on of the widow, who seems fairly kosher, and then she... Suddenly blames the doctor, doesn't she? He did it. The doctor, a man of yeah, drugs. you get you get a sort of um, I'm going to call it a witness dump mm. very early in the investigation where Maya Maya has to go and you know, answer the sort of squeal about the about the death of of Stan Gifford. And of course, when he gets to the TV studio, it's all about how many people are here, how many people do we need to talk to? There's the audience, and he works out there's hundreds, and so you, but he very quickly comes across Dr. Carl Nelson, who was Stan Gifford's personal uh, physician, you know, and, and... The writer who the writer, wishes him dead. Producer, uh, directors, assistant yeah, producer directors. Producer is a bit of a pain, isn't he? Yeah. They've, you know, no time for the police, he's a bit shifty, isn't he? Yeah. Um, <laughs> The wife, but the wife wasn't anywhere near it. And as we know, he died with a poison that acts very quickly. I'm just looking to look at my little list of people on here. It's called Art. What's he called? Art, Art Weatherly is the name Weatherly. of the, oh, yeah. the joke writer. Who wishes him dead. Yeah. Costume lady who has a big blazing row. Yeah, she thinks she's going to get fired, doesn't she? But then claims she doesn't. <laughs> The assistant director who just claimed he just spoke to him from outside the dressing room just before he went on stage, but others say he went in. And someone's blaming someone for giving Stan Gifford tablets, yeah. and it's just a purely made-up thing to try and deflect yeah. attention away. No-one suspected the folk group at all. They, no. they could have <laughs> sn snuck a poison pill in there and got away scot-free. Yeah, well, it was a variety show, so any you know, you go and invite those folkies into your, into your stage show. Anything could happen. Those freewheeling spirits. <laughs> they go and have a, an interview with David Krantz, the producer, at some point, and David Krantz is just a horrible man. Mm, just keeps he's... going on about his secretary's bosom. No, oh, he does. Yeah. He does. He's quite vile, isn't he? <laughs> it's just yeah. It's <laughs> it's weird because I think. My brother Gary mentioned this to me when he was talking about having read this. How interesting that they spend this book spends a lot of time talking about protecting women from violent physical men, but then there's lots of scenes where you meet men who are just grubby, you know, and they're quite powerful men as well. Mm. So, like David Krantz is a, is a successful TV producer, but he's just going on and on to these policemen about his secretary's boobs. Yeah. Well, given revelations in in the last sort of uh, couple of years about sort of powerful people in um, TV and film, it's undoubtedly a very accurate portrayal I of. Uh, absolutely yeah. no doubt that that is is not made up. It's not an exaggeration. In fact, you particularly know. back in the sixties, one can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It, so it's quite a it's quite a pile of weird witnesses who make life difficult. 
But I quite like as well that Maya Maya is suffering from a cold throughout this. <laughs> what do we reckon about things like that as a means for solving a crime when one of the cops is doing something like, oh, because I think it's happened before. I can't think of an example off the top of my head where something coincidental in the behaviour of one of the cops gives one of the other detectives an idea about oh, something. Oh, yeah, So yeah. Maya Maya's trying to take these cold tablets to make him feel mm-hmm. better and stay in work. Yeah, and it's a revelation about how they work when he only has, medically. Yeah, when he starts taking ones that you only have to take once or twice a day. Yeah. I, I, I quite like that as a device, as long as you don't do it in every book in the series, because if, if every time there's some uh, unrelated coincidental thing that just sparks off a train of thought, it's going to start to seem a bit suspect. But I think, you know, that must happen in police work, and I think it's, it's quite... It, 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 it works in this case. I think that's all right. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. No, fair enough. I, yeah. And also, we'll, this we'll, this we'll, we'll allow that. I will allow it. <laughs> this book has some brilliant Maya Maya Steve Carella working together stuff in it, and I, I really really enjoy that because they're they're such a great dynamic yeah. when they're paired up. But it's only really in the last few books, this one particular, that Maya Maya is getting to the maybe the. The second yeah. most used character, yeah, really. Because he never was. Reading them back, he always thought he was, but he's not for quite yeah, a long you, time. You get used to him being this kind of major player in them, and uh, he, yeah, he isn't that developed in the earlier ones, is he? No, at all, he's just a he's, bit very background, whereas this, yeah. Definitely coming to the fore now, which is great. Yeah. Because they've, they've shuffled off some of the other cops onto other. Other cases, so we don't have to see them. So Cotton Hawes is doesn't his, get a mention. Well, does he get a mention? He gets, oh, he's on the stake. Gets yeah, his name mentioned once, doesn't he? Literally, he's mentioned. So Hawes and uh, Arthur Brown and Hal Willis—they all just get a mention as being off doing something else. Andy Parker. Andy Parker takes, gets a little bit to do. Yeah, he takes a message. <laughs> I like that scene where he he phones him up and says, "I'd bet you never thought," because <laughs> like. He, he gives him a message to do something and then Corella says, yeah, he probably won't do that. And then he phones him back, doesn't he, a bit after. And he's, <laughs> and he's kind of saying, I bet you didn't think I would phone you back. Andy Parker actually doing something he's supposed to. But he's obviously put the uh, the shit up this witness because the witness <laughs> is like quite put out and a bit. Like, you didn't have to t- be that kind of threatening about how I couldn't leave my house. Oh, if God, yeah. that's what Andy Parker must have said, like, under absolutely no circumstances, can you leave your house? For... <laughs> or I'll come round. Yeah. Around. So yeah. He's, a bit, he's a bit shaken, the witness, isn't he? Which I thought is quite yeah. a funny. Few Brief appearance, scenes. but big impact. Yeah, few funny little scenes, yeah. I think he uses, I always think he uses Andy Parker for his, he's a horrible character, but he always uses him for quite good effect. I Definitely, think, I think. yeah. And Bob O'Brien gets a little Ooh, bit to yeah, do in this yeah. as well. And at no point does he accidentally have to, or not accidentally, have to shoot anyone. No. Yeah, for so, once. Yeah. yeah, he's a good character, Bob O'Brien, actually. I like the way, because at some point they have to divide up these three witnesses and interrogate them at the same time. So Bob O'Brien gets to do the interrogation. Mm-hmm. So he has his own little strand for a, a chapter of the book where he's interrogating he does, yeah. one of the witnesses, which is quite nice. Yeah. You know, so he doesn't get to be played as this terrible, tragic police figure that... <laughs> That he has been in other appearances. It must be one of the few without stool pigeons in this as well, which... Uh, That's true, it is. I always think it's a bit of a cop-out kind of... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the stool pigeons are quite fun, but it can, can be a cop-out. It can be an easy way to sort of move an investigation along when it's hit a dead yeah. end, but I suppose Danny Gimp isn't really hanging around TV studios no. so much. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, not one for him to contribute to. 
So yeah, in terms in terms of your eighty seventh uh, precinct bingo, then which yeah. I was quite like talking about these days. I suppose this might be a I don't know low to medium scorer really because there's no Monroe, no homicide cops. Yeah, there's no homicide. There's no stool pigeons. Yeah, you'd be you'd be chapping for some of those on your Just bingo to think sheet. What else would be normal? I suppose you've got your your forensics and your um, your little weird printouts. There's a an image, isn't there, of the um, yeah the assaulter we, of. Um, well, that's a quite a nice little detail actually. They they bring in someone who is a police artist, mm. and they have a police rank as well. And although they only feature for one page, he talks about the two people who work in the across the precincts and he talks about how they got into being a police artist yeah that's a really nice little bit of detail actually it's it's sort of entirely unnecessary but it just makes it again more feel more real and like that the people who are doing this stuff aren't it isn't just some tv cop show photo fit instant hit thing it's someone has to come in with the skills to do this job to mm. to help them figure it out oh, that's what i like about that andy parker thinks he looks like cary grant although I suspect he's only joking. <laughs> yeah, and it's got Berkling's report to Lieutenant Burns as well. Much later, the uh, obviously the uh, in Ooh, Berkling's yeah. the flush out the suspect with a bogus newspaper article. Well, not a bo- uh, an actual newspaper article with bogus information yeah. in it. Yeah, which is quite uh, clever. I can't, I can't remember them doing that. Before or after, maybe. I don't know. I wonder whether you would be allowed to do that, even <laughs> then, place a false story in a newspaper to try and flush out an individual witness in a case. How much string pulling and, mm. I don't know, would it cost? Presumably it would cost them something. I don't know. Or maybe they just had something on one of the Yeah, if it, if it said above it, this is an advertisement, which... Uh, <laughs> You'd be like, oh, right. This is a paid feature by the 87th Precinct. <laughs> by Stiller. Kling's character is clearly almost completely reformed from the previous story where yeah. he had his... Um, crisis. His, yeah, his crisis and his redemption. And he's clearly... That's well in the past now. He's just back to... Same old cling, just about, I would about say. About to start on a new odyssey with a new girl. Mm, indeed. Which can yeah. only, again, end brilliantly. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Poor old Bert. Poor young Bert. <laughs> so we're getting to a point where we should really be summing up some of this now. I will just like... I, I will just like... I would just like to share with you a couple of comments from Twitter that people have, have made about this when I put out a call for people's ideas. And... Uh, Bill Slocum, one of our followers, says, a surprisingly weak attempt by Ed to justify a very cool title. And he says, I had thoughts of a Kitty Genovese-style case and got Jack Parr instead. I'll come back to Kitty Genovese in a second. Matthew Sullivan, another one of our pals on Twitter, agrees with that and saying it's not one of his favourite McBain's, even after a recent reread. And the idea of a, a Applying the title to Kitty Genovese is an interesting one. Anyone heard of Kitty Genovese? I meant to look it up because I saw that and forgot completely. <laughs> well, in 1964, there was uh, a woman called Kitty Genovese was stabbed outside of her apartment in Brooklyn. So this will be in big <clears throat> news and Ed would have heard of it. So <laughs> not that you ever base stuff on actual events. But it was reported in a newspaper that 38 witnesses either saw or heard the stabbing and none of them came forward. <laughs> I think this is referenced in a, a Phil Oak song. Um, 
Oh, right. Uh, uh, outside a small circle of friends, he, I think the, the first verse is something like, look outside the window, there's a woman being grabbed, they've dragged her in the bushes and now she's being stabbed. Maybe we should call the cops and try and end her pain, but Monopoly is so much fun, I'd hate to have spoiled the game. Ah. Just, uh, yeah. That um, sounds very much like it. I think, think that's the one, yeah. So, so I have heard of it after all. Yeah, so, so they, they, am I being a bit dumb? What's the relevance of that to this? Well, it's not what they were suggesting is that the title "80 Million Eyes." If you you could have applied it to the notion of people watching but not doing anything. Oh right, I see. The, loads of witnesses and and totally inaction from everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and the Kitty Genovese case is an example of. Or they thought it was an example of what you call bystander syndrome, bystander effect, where the more people witness it, the less likely an individual is to take action. Yeah. But actually, I think that report about these 38 witnesses was completely wrong. Although they did eventually get the guy who murdered her, who confessed and confessed to murders of others, and turned out he was probably a necrophile. Wow. So, there you go. Another, another story. Another <laughs> jolly story from Paul Abbott. Yeah. Well, I wonder, yeah, I wonder whether my, whether the title of this does kind of make you think it's better than it is. I don't know. Possibly. Strange if it had a really naff title. Would you think it was as good? Perhaps I'm that shallow. I wouldn't. <laughs> 40 million, just, 40 million eyes, I might not be that into rubbish. it. Yeah, I wasn't into 40 million eyes at all. If it was just called That TV Murder and the Other Story. <laughs> no. Not that but, catchy. As you well know, I am absolutely abysmal at remembering, unless he has the most literal, literal flipping title for these books, like Axe. Like, yeah. uh, or oh, 80 million eyes. <laughs> I could always remember the one with the TV guy. Yeah. So they're great when it's like... Killer's choice. Oh I, yeah, I, I am to flipping clue. I can't remember. I so me yeah. either. Even after doing this podcast and talking about it and researching <laughs> yeah, yeah. it in detail. Yeah. Another uh, comment from Twitter from another one of our followers whose name I don't fully know, but goes as G Grover. Grover, that's appropriate for mm-hmm. eight seven precinct. Says the novel is dated, but I've come to respect how McBain consistently and freely invoked the technology of the time without irony. Gifford's televised death is a classic McBain premise as well. Hmm. So, yeah, they do knock off some points in their review of it, basically, by saying about the coroners perhaps should have figured it out themselves, possibly, <laughs> at the start. And that's that's not an unfair comment, that's I don't true. think. But we perhaps need to think about what Kenneth's going to give us when we put our have numbers we, in. Have we got a <clears throat> graphical assistant aid? No, because I forgot to print it out. All oh, right, okay. So you'll have to go without a review of oh, Kenneth's research. Well, I can, I can kind of remember where they're all about. I'll go first then and sum it up. I really do enjoy reading this one. It's one I've read quite a few times mm. for, for pleasure, but I think it is because it is just a little coast along one, yeah. really. And so, without further ado, I am going to award it 60 police shields. Quite simply, 60 police shields. Very good. And I'll move straight on to Morgan. Okay. I mean, I, I did definitely enjoy it. I breezed through it. Nice, uh, easygoing read. So some fun stuff. I liked all the sort of um, period detail of the around the TV show and stuff. That was quite good fun. That said, I'm not totally convinced by the interweaving of the two stories. It felt a little bit like sort of two more bits of the empty hours just kind of chopped yeah, that's together. a good point. A good point. Um, so I'm going to go in with 
uh, fairly low one, I think. I have 52 police Oof. shields. 52. Oof. Well, that leaves Steve-O to yeah. reveal his feelings. Yeah, I can live with the two two stories. It's not like the two stories which you have to flip in read in Lord of the Rings, for example, where you you got all the excitement of the kings, like, and horses and... Yeah, yeah. And then, oh, my God, we're back to flipping Frodo. Tom Bombadil. No, Frodo walking at snail's pace through the flipping marshes. It's eating, a good job it's not like that. Eating flipping <laughs> leaves out of his backpack. It's like, can we get back to some kings again? It's all a bit more exciting. So it's not like... But, yeah. But I, I quite like the um, Cindy Forrest story because I thought Bert needed a bit... A bit oh, yeah. A bit, um, nice. But, yeah, but then again, uh, yeah, perhaps I just like it a bit more because it's a bit... Memorable, but yeah, it is a bit of a coaster downhill. You're not coming across anything that's too challenging. The plot's fairly, ultimately, very straightforward. A little bit pedestrian, I think. Yeah, as as the series goes. So I think I'll go with sixty as well. I think it's oh. about of that ilk. I would say six six out of ten, which gives us a score of fifty-seven. Fifty-seven. There we go. Okay. Who would have thought it? I have a feeling that we are self-calibrating a little bit here, and that <laughs> self-calibrating, as in we, I think we've generally most of these things are top end of the scale. Right. We've been rating them, and I think we're sort of now being a bit more honest about the relation of the stories to other stories, mm. and we're coming up with some more yeah. realistic numbers. I think that's inevitably going to happen, isn't it? It's the, got the, to. the further you get into the series, the more you see the bigger picture of it and you realise that, that that needs to happen. So, yeah, it possibly means that some of these scores now compared to some of the early ones are, yeah, a little bit uh, out of... Uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Yeah, <laughs> I get what you mean. You, you would need to ex- extrapolate the, um, yeah. Extrapolate <laughs> the we, We've been very clear and coherent here. You can tell that we've, we're all uh, I think we've statistics been, I, majors. Yes. I, I think we've been all right for quite some time, actually, in giving decent scores to the better ones and not-so-great ones to the ones that aren't quite, fa- aren't quite as good. But to yeah. say that's 5.7 out of 10, then there's plenty of room for going below that with others I can think of in the future that certainly aren't <laughs> as good as that in my well, I, I will reveal as well, then, because I didn't do it at the earlier part of the episode, what our friend Anthony Boucher and Maurice Richardson oh, yeah. thought of it at the time in the contemporary reviews that they did for... Does Boucher absolutely love it? Boucher does love it, of, of course. course. Of course he does. He thinks that he... I, I think Boucher is actually uh, <laughs> Edward Hunter. It's another pseudonym. What does he have to say? He said, well, basically he goes on about the two novels being, uh, the two novelettes being intertwined. And he says, each is very good in itself. Combined, expanded and developed, they add up to the best book about the 87th Precinct in several years. Sure about that. No, it's good. It's good. It's re-readable. It's not the best of this Didn't we have an absolute rip-snorter quite recently? From the the, the air, we had uh, Doll most recently, didn't we? Yeah, Doll was great. Of the three in my... uh... What happens in Doll? (laughs) Oh, it's the one with the doll. Yeah. See, I can instantly remember. Instantly remember. I think instantly might be a well, question. Well, I can almost instantly remember, without having to ask, what book I did a 
podcast after reading for the second time less than a month ago was actually about, but it was about a doll. Yeah. yeah that's what were you saying, Morgan? I was going to say of the three uh, novels in my uh, Faithful Omnibus edition, which is getting its third outing today, uh, I think 80 Million Eyes is definitely the weakest. But uh, well, they... I don't know. But, uh, I'll obviously have to disagree and, with Mr. Uh, Boucher. Yeah, Morris Richardson of Crime Ration in The Observer said of the story, it's fast, exciting and realistic. Well, I, I agree with that. Well up to McBain's high standard. So... Oh, yeah, I mean, it's... I think they were a bit above 57, but... Yeah, don't get me wrong, it's good, but by the standards of the series, we're talking very high standards here, it's not one of the best. It is still one I think I would... I possibly have recommended to people mm. to read if you come across it as a first one. Oh, yeah, it'd be a good sort of... I can see it being Easy a way decent in. way in. Yeah. yeah, it is. And you could say, well, did you enjoy that? Yes, well, you're in for an absolute treat because there's mm. loads better than that. Now we'll go and read King's Ransom or yeah, Dawn yeah. or something. Right, well... Cracking. I think that's that then. We've got the bonus episode to do. There is no... The world-famous book-huffing returns again <laughs> for the 21st time. <laughs> Maybe. It might never. even be more than... 21. We've did probably we, done some bonus. Some bonus well, did we huff ones. at the beginning? Though? That's a good question. So, yeah, well, I'll say 21. <laughs> Nobody can deny that. <laughs> Unless they go back and check. What I was going to say was there is obviously, as I mentioned, there's no book from 1967. So, we will be jumping straight onto the 22nd novel, which was in 1968. And what's that? Fuzz. <gasps> and there's a lot to talk about with Fuzz, I think. Is that the one about the. The, the guy with the Remington fuzz away. That's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> Who is going around... I might wear a bobbly jumper for that one. A bit like the one I'm here. And with a, a poor beard. I think you should. We will try and go method by being as fuzzy as possible. So I, might, I might just stroke a peach whilst uh, mm. podcasting. I'll stroke a peach fuzz. and that will be Burt Reynolds' face. I say this every time, but I think that might be a good one, is it? Mm. We'll, we'll see. We'll, well let you know in a month. Absolutely. And until then, I'm going to say goodbye and hand over the goodbye stick to Steve-O. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. Bye. Bye.